Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in the Grinnell College Authors and Artists podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Autumn Wilkie on the show, and we'll be discussing her book, Disability in Higher Education, A Social Justice Approach. And we will be discussing disability in general at uh, places like Grinnell, because um, it's kind of a new thing, and we'll get into that in in the course of the interview. Autumn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marshall. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as, as Marshall said, um, I'm Autumn Wilkie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am currently the Associate Chief Diversity Officer for Disability Resources at Grinnell College, uh, and I'm also a doctoral candidate at Colorado State University, where I am studying disability uh, in higher education. Um, and I have worked at Grinnell College for the past 11 years, mostly within the realm of disability resources. And so uh, not only have a lot to talk about related to the book, but also uh, this is my day-to-day work. And so very excited to be here talking about this. Yeah, I, I, and that's a great segue to my question. I graduated from Grinnell in 1984, and we had student affairs deans. I think, I think we did. Grinnell is so small that I don't think I ever knew a person who was a dean. They probably were a dean, but I didn't know about that um, because it's a very intimate place. But what are the what is the historical origin of your role? Uh, my impression is it's pretty new. Yeah, yeah. My, my and my current role is very new. So bringing everything under the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion uh, really has happened just within the last couple of years with the. Uh, inclusion of a new chief diversity officer, Dr. Shavala Rivera at the college, but the Office of Disability Resources at Grinnell College as a a standalone office is is very new. Uh, Our office was created in 2014, 2015. Um, I believe I was hired as the first coordinator of disability resources in October of 2014, if I I remember my timeline correctly. (laughs) Um, But I had been been working uh, at Grinnell prior to that as a residence life coordinator, and a quarter of my time was in academic advising, doing work for accommodations for students with disabilities at Grinnell. And so it had been happening under, as a part of the work of uh, the Office of Academic Advising and Student Affairs, but there had not been a dedicated office prior to 2014. Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that, uh, I think it was called the Office of Student Service or something, did, I, I don't remember the word accommodation being mentioned at all in my time at Grinnell. I, I, I really don't. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible, and I I think that that is the um, that's actually a trend or a, a theme across higher education in the United States. Uh, even though the ADA has been around since the 1990s, it's really only been in the last decade or so that many colleges have really begun to think about. Um, having a specific office for supporting students with disabilities around access and accommodation, and it's been even more recent that institutions have really been kind of shifting very similar to what Grinnell is doing, to thinking about not just accommodation and access, but also identity and really exploring sort of the, the so, so social emotional needs of students with disabilities in terms of navigating that as part of their identity and their overall uh, experience at college. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, and maybe, I, you know, again, I don't want to put you on the stock. Can you talk a little bit about the legal framework here? Because I, I, I know because I've run this business, the New Books Network, that there are laws about accommodation. Can you talk a little bit about the legal context for this? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely do that. So in uh, in higher education, and, and this is a shift for students when they first come to college because there are different laws that govern the K through 12 system. 
um, under the K through 12 system, students are uh, protected under the IDEA or the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, which is where you get your IEP, Individual Education Plan, and your Section 504 plan. Uh, and those um, really provide a much more expansive support system in, in cases, particularly at schools that are well-resourced, K-12 schools that are well-resourced, um, because the, the focus of those laws are, are their success-based laws. So the goal of, of uh, IDEA is to get students to graduation, um, regardless of what, what that looks like or how, how that pathway takes. And so, but in the least restrictive way. When you transition to college, it shifts from a success-based framework to an access-based framework, which can be a really big transition for students uh, and their families because it, it, it means that the ways that students have to advocate for themselves uh, shifts pretty drastically at the point when they enter college. And and, and what it means is that students have to self-identify. They have to identify themselves to the institution or to our office and say, I'm a student with a disability. Uh, here are the things that I am needing in terms of accommodations. And many students, are, you know, don't yet have the skills or the knowledge about what is this going to, what does this look like? What do I need in, in higher education um, uh, in terms of residence halls, in terms of dining, in terms of academics? And so a, a lot of the work that we end up doing is within in that framework of the law, what we need to do under the ADA, what we need to do under Section 504, but there's a lot more that goes into it um, in, in the way that Grinnell um, approaches. And, and I think many institutions follow a similar model, although Grinnell is, is certainly, we have much more staffing um, for an institution of our size than many other institutions, um, but really kind of helping students think about or navigate what does it mean um, to really figure out what I need in particular environments. How do I ask for that? How do I um, really understand how my disability interfaces with different spaces and environments in, in a way that really helps students uh, be ready to leave Grinnell, you know, by the time they, they've hit graduation and be, and be ready to advocate at the next institution that may not have as much uh, in terms of support or be able to really think about um, entering the workforce and employment uh, in terms of accommodations as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm familiar with the K through 12. I have three kids. And as I said in the pre-interview, my middle daughter is deaf in one ear. So I know about IEPs and, and we brought that to the attention of the school. But in college, the onus is on the college student. They have to be able to assess themselves. How do they do that? I mean, how, you know, here's an example. I'll just, this is just right out of my own biography. I had dyslexia. Nobody knew what dyslexia, I'm old. Nobody knew what that was. Like I didn't learn to read until like third grade. <laughs> I, I became a successful reader. I can say that, but it takes me a lot longer to read stuff. There's no question I have dyslexia. Like it's, it's just a fact. Uh, it, yep. I, I've found, you know, I found ways to deal with it. And in interesting ways, it's been a kind of advantage because when I read, I read really carefully. Um, um, but so, so how does a student identify if they have a, a an issue that is, um, that would fall under the rubric of these laws? Yeah. Well, and, and I, and that's a really complex question in some ways because it, it really does, it, it depends and, and it, our, I would say that our K-12 system and our, our health care system are not set up in ways for students to have had equitable access to um, the diagnostic sort of resources being identified in their yeah. K-12 system. Um, and so we, we end up working with students um, sort of across the range of experiences. We have students who arrive at Grinnell 
uh, with a with a stack of paperwork from their their previous mm. institution, from um, uh, from medical providers that that really really deeply details. Here's how this student is impacted. Sometimes the students don't know all of that information. Their parents have really been heavily involved, and, and the student themselves may not be able to describe. And so there's there's still some uh, you know sort of. It, individual learning that happens for students. But then we also have students who, um, who, you know, Grinnell students are incredibly, incredibly bright and have found all sorts of ways to sort of navigate and cope with any number of learning environments in their, in their K-12. Um, and so we'll have students who arrive at Grinnell and it's the first time that, um, the pace is moving fast enough, or there is so much reading or there, you know, whatever it might be, um, that it's really the first time that the students, um, are, are encountering a difficulty related to their disability. Um, the, you know, those things have, have been there before, you know, taking dyslexia or things like that. We've had students who, who very clearly should have been identified by their K-12 system at some point um, and, and were missed likely because um, they were still getting A's. They were doing really well. They yeah. were, you know, really accommodate. They were, they were self-accommodating by being able to retain a ton of, auditory information by, you know, really. That's being what able... I did. I learned to ris- listen really carefully. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and that works, that works and, and it's a skill set, and it works really, really well until it doesn't. Um, and yeah. then, you know, when you get to, you get to a place like Grinnell and you have four classes, four or five classes sometimes, and all of them have hundreds of pages of reading yeah. every week, it, you know, that's where it starts to break down. And so sometimes we'll have students who come in and say, I don't know what's going on. Reading has always been a struggle for me, but here I just, I can't, I can't keep up. Um, What are my options? And so then we'll work with students um, every year. I would say we have um, somewhere between five and 10 students that we work with who actually end up getting tested for a learning disability or ADD. And you can do that. You have the, the staff to actually test them. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah, so we don't do the testing in-house, um, but we have a relationship with a provider that we send them to, and we can help cover for yeah. students who are low income. We can help cover the cost uh, of uh-huh. testing. So, And what are the most, uh, I don't know if this, I guess we still speak about accommodations, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah. what are the most typical accommodations that you see? Is there, is there, or is that a statistically meaningless question? Uh, it's not statistically meaningless. Um, I would say that most common, the most common accommodations that we see right now, um, there's two. Uh, One of them is on the academic side. I would say it's stuff related to testing. Um, So extended time or reduced distraction, um, really making some sort of allowance for the environment of, you know, you have 50 minutes to put as much information as you can down on this piece of paper. Dump, dump. <laughs> yep. Um, and so having having accommodations in some way related to exams is by far our, our biggest accommodation um, on the academic side. Uh, and then on the um, uh, the residential side, we've been seeing a lot of students who, for a big variety of reasons, are, are needing a single um, living space um, for themselves, you know, whether that be related to um, anxiety, uh, a chronic health condition in, currently under, our, you know, COVID and, and things like that, but having a single in the residence halls um, before, uh, so any junior or senior can have a single at Grinnell, um, but for first and second years, they yeah. would need an accommodation to be able to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it touched, I'm fine. I, th- I feel like I'm talking too much about myself, um, but I both hated time tests because what, what I discovered was, is that if I was given enough time, I could do anything, but I couldn't do it as fast as all the people in my class. Yep. Um, yep. And it's so but, rare that 
time actually is what matters. You know, yeah, well, I can tell you that. I was going to say the same thing. Like now I've, I've had a variety of careers and time has never been important in any of them. <laughs> yep. Yep. And even for, the, even for the test, the time, the time is arbitrary because that's how long the class was scheduled for in, yeah, in right. most cases. So yeah, that's exactly right. And then the second thing about a single is that my freshman year, I got in with a group of people who are lovely and I'm still in touch with them. I really am. But I found that, well, let's just say it was difficult negotiating living with my friends. Yep. And so Grinnell gave me a single, actually, <laughs> in, my, in the second semester of my, because it was just a little too much for me. And, yep. and once I had a single, I, d I did a lot better. Yep. Um, so I, I can certainly understand, I can certainly understand both of those accommodations being um, reasonably common. Are there, are, are there, um, are there tools available for students who are going to college to, to learn about these things? Because I got to imagine a lot of them just don't know. Either they're from an under-resourced K-12 uh, district. They don't know. They think they might have a problem. Is there is there a place they can go to learn about this stuff? Yeah. So there are there are several places where students can go. I, I think one of the challenges is that, um, you know, if, if you don't know what you're looking for, it, right. you know, if you don't know that you don't know what, that there's a problem or you don't know what that problem is. You don't know what words to even search or how to, right. how to sort of go look. Um, but I will say that there are a number of, um, and a growing number of nonprofit organizations that are collecting information on um, the web for students who are getting ready to go to college um, around particular uh, sorts of disabilities or particular learning challenges. Um, uh, there, I'm trying to think of some of them, um, uh, it's escaping me now. I, I don't mean um, to put you on the spot. We can put them in the show notes if you send me an email. Yeah, I'll send you an email because there, there, there's a handful of, um, uh, in particular, that are really collecting a lot of that info and would be a great starting place for students to be able to say, oh, this sounds like what I'm experiencing. Here's things that I should explore or here's questions I should ask. Yeah, I uh, let's um, shift a little bit to, I want to call it old school accommodations or accessibility I lived in Norris when I was a freshman. Yep. Norris has no elevator. <laughs> it will. It will after this summer. Yeah, really. I always wondered about that. The other thing is, I used to live in the Soviet Union, and I remember once I lived in this big building, and there was this two track that went up the stairs, and I thought, isn't that nice? They have a two track uh, for um, people in wheelchairs, but then I noticed it was at about forty-five degrees, and it was obviously for prams. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> So what is the what what are colleges doing now in terms of just physical mobility? I, I yeah. have to imagine there's just been tremendous. I know every time that they put in a new sidewalk here where I live, it always has a ramp. Like that's yep. there must be some law about that because they do it every time. Yeah, so that's actually built into um, it's part of the ADA, but it's really in our um, building codes now uh, that. Uh, that uh. Uh, there's a whole host of accessibility features that need to be in any new construction or substantial renovation. Um, uh, and and the, the definition of what constitutes a substantial renovation gets debated a lot, um, uh, you know, but Grinnell is really approaching it as anytime we renovate, we, we bring it up to the latest um, in terms of accessibility. And so um, Norris is actually a great example um, uh, as you know, one of the the larger residence halls on campus has has four stories, um, narrow halls. You know, a, n a number of different features that make it challenging. I was yeah. 
but it but it is it you know it, in its current iteration it, it it does feel very confining um uh, in in it's very narrow it's a very cement building um but it's being substantially renovated this summer for um both just it's due for its standard renovation that the college does of residence halls um and to bring it up in terms of accessibility so um, uh, they're, they're adding an elevator and a new sort of lobby area that is on all four floors, um, helping kind of bring, um, more open space to the building at the same time that they're adding those accessibility features, expanding the bathrooms, um, really thinking about sort of that collective experience for students being able to visit friends on any floor, regardless of if they, um, have a temporary mobility, uh, impairment, you know, from tearing an ACL or anything that our, our athletes, you know, sometimes are wanting to do. <laughs> yep, I play basketball. Yep. I had those. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I'm actually really excited. Um, we, we did Yonker several years ago. Uh, we did Yonker as well and added an elevator and expanded the bathrooms. And, and that was a really um, substantial renovation that has been really great in terms of opening up even more sort of spaces on campus that students can visit or have programs. Um, and Norris is the next. Um, we're also working on uh, additional renovations to residence halls sort of over the, the next 10 years that'll really start yeah. to change that landscape. I, I lived on West Norris 4th and uh, I didn't know it. I loved it there. I thought it was great. Uh, but then I learned later that it was the worst draw you can get. I don't think it's bad anymore. <laughs> it has air conditioning. Yeah, we didn't warming. have air conditioning. No, all no, about we, the air conditioning. So. Yeah, we didn't have. Well, one of the things you said interested me, and that is about these physical accommodations for mobility issues, and that is the issue of trade-offs. And it seems to me that so much of your work and so much of our thinking about disability has to do with these trade-offs, because I've renovated buildings myself or houses, and you know, making them uh, accessible is expensive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and, and so are, are there, I guess this is a sort of silly question, are, are there federal or state grants to give Grill money to do, how is this stuff funded when, when the builder says, look, this is going to cost you a fortune and there's just no way you want to do this? Yeah. So, you know, and, and this is one of the reasons I love working at Grinnell. Um, you know, we are lucky that we have a large endowment, but we're also lucky, uh, Lucky is maybe not the right word because it's been intentional. Um, but really, I would say that my work is made easier because the Grinnell as a, a collective really is very invested in these accessibility changes. And so um, when we're planning for it, like accessibility is a whole chunk of the budget that is built into any mm. renovation. Um, uh, and so it's planned for when we're raising money for when we're doing a capital project like we did for Yonker the cost of, or the estimated cost of those accessibility sort of features, adding the elevator, expanding bathrooms, things like that, all of that, it gets built into the the planning for, for, um, and the fundraising for the construction. Um, but, but you raise a point like it, cost is, is something that I would say prevents a lot of, a lot of institutions and a lot of places um, from either following the law or doing renovations in the first place, because they don't want, they don't ha- have the capacity or they don't want to take on the capacity of adding some of these features. Right. You would think there would be some sort of bucket of state or federal or local money to do these things when, from the point of view of the proprietor, it's just cost prohibitive. 
I don't know anything about it. I bet that there is if you looked into it. Um, there, there's probably some funding. Um, I'm not aware of any substantial sort of uh, buckets of money uh, that across the board exist for 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 things. I know like um, uh, revitalization grants sometimes can have money built in that's related to access, uh, accessibility. So if a downtown um, gets a revitalization grant from the uh, the state right. or things like that. Um, but, you know, one of one of the challenges and this is this is kind of getting back to that legal question you asked, one of the challenges of all of these laws is that they they there is no sort of enforcement mechanism until somebody makes a complaint. And so yeah. it, it really relies on or puts the puts the expenditure of energy, the onus on people with disabilities to, to, you know, not only have tackled, like, I couldn't get into the space I wanted to go to, or I didn't have access to this thing, then they also have to go through the process of saying, it, here, you know, with the government, like, here, I want to file a complaint, blah, blah, you know, all of those steps. And there, there is really no mechanism um, where, where this is being sort of systematically yeah. checked. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I know that in my local area, there are building codes and buildings over a certain size have to be accessible. There's no question about it. I mean, I've renovated individual homes. They don't have to be accessible, but we've done what we can. Um, this may seem like an odd question, but how do you deal with service animals? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I was at the grocery store the other day and and there was a guy with a service animal in there. And it, what is the law around those and how do you deal with those things? Yeah. Yeah. So service animals, um, uh, and, and I, I could talk about animals on campus for, for hours probably, um, because there's, there's, you know, sort of multiple types of animals that can provide support related to disability service animals being one category. Um, and so service animals for, for folks who are listening and and maybe are not as familiar are going to be animals that are individually trained to specifically do a task that alleviates one component or addresses one component of a disability for somebody. Um, And so what people often think about would be guide dogs, uh, guide dogs for the blind. Um, But there are also a number of other types of service dogs. Um, There are a number of alert dogs, dogs that can sense seizures coming on, diabetic, um, uh, shock. I know about this is incredible. Yes. The ones that, uh, yeah, the the (laughs) The, olfactory abilities of dogs are mind boggling. Yeah, the, the things dogs can do. There's also dogs that will do retrieval tasks, bring medication, any number of things. Um, and so service dogs are actually protected as, um, I, I often use the analogy that they're actually closer to or should be thought of almost like medical equipment. Um, like just like hmm. you wouldn't take away a wheelchair from somebody or, or things like that. It's the same sort of idea. Um, and so they're not an accommodation. Service animals are actually an access tool. Um, and so- huh. Um, which I think a lot of folks don't don't realize. Um, and, and a lot of that has been getting complicated, I think, in sort of national discourse with the addition of uh, emotional support animals, mm-hmm. um, which are which are and can be an accommodation in particular environments or spheres. And so um, and we've been seeing both. Um, we this year, uh, I think we had five across faculty, staff and students. We had five service animals, service dogs on campus this year. Um and so in, in a whole variety of spaces. Um, and so it's not uncommon to sort of see a working dog on campus, which meant that we did a lot of education with the campus at large to really talk about what's the proper etiquette. How do you not distract these dogs as they're doing an incredibly, incredibly important job? Um, uh, you know, especially I always say this with star, you know, college students are starved for babies, uh, 
pets, you know, any sort of yes. like the, the stuff that they don't get in the residence halls. And so, you know, really kind of helping train out the, oh my gosh, doggy response that, that people yeah. have. Yeah, that's right. Never pet somebody's service dog. Yeah. <laughs> that dog's working. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the uh, assistive, uh, assistive and learning technologies? Because I, I think that since I was in college, which was when the dinosaurs walked the earth, that there weren't any. <laughs> but now I think there are. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's a ton of, um, and I would say that this is a really, really fast changing area. Technology in general is really fast changing. Um, but there, there's a number of things. Um, and even I would say in the last five years, there's been a shift where things that before would have been really cost prohibitive or expensive for somebody and could only happen related to an accommodation, um, uh, screen readers, uh, speech to text, that sort of thing, are now becoming things where um, uh, it's being built into a lot of programs. Uh, you know, so your your PC, your Mac, um, have built-in screen readers built into them now. Yep. There's free and um, non-proprietary software that does a lot of these things. And so um, more and more people are using uh, assistive technology, things that were originally designed to assist somebody with a disability for a whole wide range of things. And so um, the, uh, I think a great example is with speech-to-text um, or text-to-speech uh, screen reader type thing. Um, I, I know a lot of our athletes on campus actually use that for when they're riding on the bus, being right. able to listen to their readings instead of, you know, uh, uh, trying to like get nauseous reading from a textbook or, or things like that. But um, some of the most common, uh, I would say, assistive technologies that are getting used on campus right now um, would be things like Otter, um, Otter AI, which does like an auto transcript. Um, we have students who use that either to augment um, hearing in the classroom, especially in this age with masks. Um, uh, a lot of folks, uh, we have students who will actually have Otter running so that they can double check. Did I hear that yeah. correctly? Um, uh, and that's separate from from CART or uh, live captioning, but for just sort of standard conversation, students have been using some of those AI um, sort of tools. Uh, we also have students who um, use a variety of assistive technologies related to uh, speaking math or things like that. There, That's been a, a new area where up until recently for folks who had dyscalculia or, or learning disabilities that impacted math, there weren't a whole lot of options for how do you, um, what, are, what are assistive technologies that can help with the typing or making sure that things are in a particular order. Um, mm -hmm. We're reading back math because of how how complex some of those symbols are. So, yeah, that's cool. That's that's very cool. Um, yes, I, I I know that for dyslexia there are particular technologies. I know that if I make my screen a different color, it helps. <laughs> yep. Yep. I think the Apple Corporation taught me this. Thank you, Apple Corporation. Um, I don't know if this falls under your brief, but I know that a lot of college students have. I don't know if they're momentary, but they have crises. Mm -hmm. um, like I can identify a couple of points in my four-year college career when I was really not feeling too well. Yep. Um, I don't think there was anything permanently wrong, but it was situational or whatever it was. How do you deal with those? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say that that's a place where, um, at least at Grinnell, um, really, we have a, a sort of network of folks who help support. Um, sometimes that will come to us in disability resources. Often it's something. So we have um, our colleagues in academic advising in student health and wellness and then in um, student success. Um, uh, who all also can help depending on what that sort of momentary or 
um, short-term crisis is. Um, and, and so to give a couple of examples, you know, if a student, um, let's say a student has a health emergency, whether that be mental mm-hmm. health or visit, you know, somebody has kidney stones or, or things like that. Um, we as a collective have a system in place to help support that student for short-term sort of absences from the college in terms of while they're getting the, the healthcare support that they need, figuring out, you know, how do you then catch up when you get back? a number of things like that. And most often that'll be handled by my colleagues in academic advising. Um, but if there are ongoing things that come out of that, sometimes students while they're, while they're in, you know, sort of acute treatment for something might get diagnosed with a chronic health condition or, or things like that. And so then we'll have maybe ongoing sort of supports that come out of our office. Um, I think a really concrete example of that is concussions. Um, you know, uh, we've, we've seen, and I think colleges across the country, as we've learned more about concussions, we see more concussions on campuses mm-hmm. and um, and respond to them. And so concussions will, um, if a student has a concussion, often those are going to be students where our offices will work together. The student might use some short-term assistive technology to be able to listen to their readings instead of using the computer or, or things like that. Um, but, you know, as students, um, some students will have concussion symptoms that last well beyond a week. Um, and oftentimes those are then students who will continue to work with us in terms of accommodated testing um, or other sorts of accommodations that they might need in their academics. Yeah, I think this is a very positive development because I know when I was in college, again, this was a long time ago, the idea of withdrawing, there was a great stigma against it. Like you yeah. did not want to do that. Not only because your parents or your, you didn't want to miss your friends or whatever it was, but you didn't want to take any time off. So you were going to gut through it, whatever it was. And I did it several times where I probably, it would probably would have been good for me to take a couple of weeks off, you know, just chill out or something. But I, I'm hoping that the stigma against withdrawal, even temporary withdrawal is, is less than it was. And there are resources available for people because, you know, I mean, you know, you're 18 to 20, whatever you are, this is a volatile time in people's lives and yep. they're thrown into this new context. And I don't know, it shocked the crap out of me. Uh, yep. And so I, I had some, you know, there were things that I had trouble dealing with. Um, I, you know, and Grinnell was very helpful to me in, in every possible way, but I didn't ever think of withdrawing. I it just like never occurred to me. Yeah. And I would, I would say that that, that pressure and that stigma still exists. It's something that I still navigate with students where, you know, sometimes the best thing is to take some time off from school and the, you know, I think oftentimes the familial or the, the, the peer pressure of what would, what will it look like to take a semester off, either not come at all for that semester or withdraw partway through um, or even drop classes. You know, I think sometimes can be a a really difficult challenge for students and, you know, just as you were saying, like, you know, 18 to 22 is a really volatile time, you know, you're in a new environment. It's also the time when a lot of new health conditions, where you're right in the age where things might appear, you know, whether those be mental health or physical health. Um, And so we we have students every year who receive a new diagnosis of something that, you know, it it takes an adjustment or, or actually takes some really substantial care that just isn't necessarily available in rural Iowa. Um, And so, you know, we have students every year that we help sort of navigate what will it look like to either take some time away? um, What would it look like to reduce, you know, if we can keep you here and that's what you really want? Can we reduce your classes? Can we figure out a trajectory to get you to graduation that also gives you room to breathe in this moment and and really kind of thinking through those things? Yeah, back when I was a professor, one of the things I learned that it's often very good, I mean, again, I'm not a professional here, but I would often advise students to take a semester off who are struggling. Yeah. And say, just go do something else for a while. 
I'm sure you can do that. Come back and you'll be stronger. And I, I really believe this. Um, I mean, I went straight through in four years. I don't know if that was the best thing to do. I might have benefited from a year doing something else. Yep. Um, and it's not a race. <laughs> it is not a race. I mean, I'm 60 now. And believe me, I don't think that I lost any time or gained any time by, you know, gutting it through. Um, so I think it can be very healthy for people to take time off um, school. And Grinnell will always welcome you back because you have a yep. permanent relationship with the college. Um, and we had we had adult students when I was there, people that had had departed, let's put it that way, when they were younger and then came back in their 30s yep. to finish. And that's great. I love those people. <laughs> yep. They have, they have a ton to share. You yeah, know? right. Yeah. They have, they, they have things to say, which your average 18 to 22 year old does not have. Um, so I always really appreciate it. What about accommodations um, for, for faculty members? Is that dealt in the same, um, so under, under the same brief or in the same bucket as students, or is there a special division for faculty members? Yeah. So at Grinnell, um, faculty and staff, uh, I work with around accommodations as well. Um, not every institution has that where it's all the same office, um, uh, that is doing the support. Um, oftentimes, uh, faculty and staff accommodations are going to live within HR or yep. um, or be tacked on to somebody's sort of position somewhere. Um, uh, and so the supports um, for employees are, are governed under slightly different parts of the ADA um, and employment law. Um, and so there are some differences there. Um, in terms of uh, reasonable accommodations for employment, um, but a lot of the same principles apply in terms of you know what um, what's the barrier? How do we how do we try to remove that barrier so that you are able to do you know the essential parts of your job that you were hired to do, the teaching the um, the mentoring, you know whatever it might be. How do we how do we make that possible? And so. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that definitely still uh, falls under my purview. It, it, I'm just interested. Is it, this is kind of a new thing, as I've said, at least it's new to me. Is, is there a um, scholarly society or organization or maybe even administrative organization for people that have roles like yours? Is there a convention they can go to? And, you know, because that always helps. Like, you know, yeah. I was a Russian historian and I could go to the Slavic, you know, the Slavic Studies Conference where I'd meet other people that did what I did. Yeah, so there's there's actually a couple of different ones um, uh, for the, the sort of different areas of our work. So for for folks who are specifically working with students, um, the Association of Higher Education and Disability, uh, also called AHEAD, um, is is probably the the main uh, sort of organization that provides. Uh, networking, support, education, um, and has an annual convention um, for really being able to talk about best practices and changes in the yeah. field. Um, there's also some smaller uh, conferences that are, are more HR tailored for folks who are, do, are being ADA um, compliance folks within employment. Um, I often, it's not necessarily a, um, a a convention or a conference or things like that, but I often refer to um, the Job Accommodation Network, which is askjan.org, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that as a resource, um, particularly around employment um, and supports for employees. Um, I, that's where I refer folks to. I encourage people to take a look there because often they're going to be able to find things that are really helpful for them in navigating um, uh, the specific components of their job, um, the ways that their disability might intersect with those components. Uh, and then it's also a place where I go to kind of keep up on um, uh, I think COVID's a great example. You know, what are some of the things about how to accommodate people um, 
who are immunocompromised during COVID. Right. Like that was a, a place that really provided a lot of guidance. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I encourage everybody to go seek out those resources who's interested in these things because they probably just have an enormous library of stuff. And also, you know, the other thing is they probably have an email list too. And that's probably the most valuable part of it because people yep. trade information on these email lists that I find very, very useful. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. We have a kind of traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what's on your mind now? What are you working on now? What are you excited about? Yeah. Um, so so uh, kind of something that is tied into the book that we were talking about today and all of the different components of it. So um, I actually, with the original book, was brought in after it had originally been conceptualized um, as one of the authors. Um, uh, most of the writing had not been done, but uh, they, they had not <laughs> yet. And, yeah. and at that that point, sounds like you got hoodwinked. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at that point, um, at that point, the, the project already existed. It was sort of the, the um, brainchild of of, uh, Nancy Evans, who was my mentor in grad school. Um, and this book really brought me into a, a, a writing group, really, of folks um, that I'm continuing to work with. Uh, we have been keeping um, notes about what a second edition of the book could look like, because, uh, you know, the, the legal chapter, chapter three, was yeah, probably change, out of, yeah, out of right. date the minute it was printed, yeah. um, or the minute it was sent to print. Um, uh, but so uh, um, Nancy Evans, Ellen Broido, and Kirsten Brown and I, uh, we meet weekly um, uh, related to a variety of projects that we're working on right now. A couple of the things that we've been working on have been research projects um, that will lead to papers um, as opposed to a book around um, uh, how students with disabilities define success in college, um, really kind of pushing back against sort of um, more institutional metrics, GPA, graduation, um, and really trying to find out what 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 is important to students with disabilities while they're in school. Um, and for a lot of them, it's it's being healthy, it's finding friends, you know, really kind of thinking about what does success actually look like. Um, and then I, I'm part of another group, um, and we're really looking at uh, professionals in higher education and how they navigate disclosure. So how staff and faculty yeah. navigate disclosing disability uh, within a variety of environments. Um, uh, and then obviously I'm working on my dissertation, um, which there is of, that. There is that. Um, uh, and, and really looking with that, um, looking to explore and expand sort of these ideas around um, visibility of disability. So apparent, non-apparent, often talked about as a binary, often disability is thought about as either your disability is very visible and always visible, or it's invisible and always invisible. And, and there's really a spectrum to that in terms of how people recognize various assistive technologies or um, aspects of disability, whether it gets read as disability or not. And so really looking to, to further complicate this idea that, apparent, that disability is binary. Disability mm -hmm. either is, is visible or invisible um, and, and coming up with a much better way to think about apparentness of disability, particularly in educational settings. I don't know. In my own case, I, again, I'm talking too much about myself, but my, I don't know if to call them disabilities, but the challenges I have, mental and physical, just seem to come and go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just great. Then other times I'm like, I'm not great. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciated what you said about different yeah. goals for people in college. I mean, I know that my mother's college experience was entirely different than mine. She dropped out of college and then had us and then went back to college to a big state uh, institution. And she was all about getting credits. That's all she talked about was credits. Because <laughs> she was yep. raising us and had a job. And she's like, credits. I'm accumulating credits. <laughs> yep. Credits and learning. Yep. Yeah, right. I, got, I need credits. Well, um, Autumn, thank you very much for talking with us today. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me.